Hi, welcome to a special episode of the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. This is a special series of five episodes in collaboration with the 14th Annual Learning Ideas Conference in New York City. This year, the conference is fully online with participants joining from around the world. In each episode, I talk with several speakers from the Learning Ideas Conference to highlight the interesting work and ideas that they will be presenting at the conference, and also to find out what they are excited about in the future of learning. Hello, this is day four of the Learning Ideas Conference, and in this episode, I will be talking to three individuals who are giving talks on this day, which is June 17th, 2021. In this special episode, we will be talking to these individuals who really do absolutely incredible work in the realm of learning, finding out a little bit about who they are and insight into their work and what they will be presenting at the conference. But just to give you a little bit of an overview of what they will be talking about, my first guest is the Executive Vice President of the Learning Guild in New York City. And the Learning Guild fosters this wonderful community and provides resources for learning professionals. It's a great organization to be a part of. In his talk, he will be discussing the latest and greatest trends in learning technologies within organizations. And of course, in his position at the Learning Guild, they have their finger on the pulse on what is new in learning in organizations. So he will share some of the highlights, which is really useful, especially in this fast moving space of learning technologies, having someone curate and pull out What's interesting is really, really useful. My second guest is a professor and co-founder of the Center of Contemplative Science at Keist University in Korea. And she is going to talk about mindfulness and how mindfulness can help students in STEM, but also anyone, really. It's, It's not just for students in STEM, but it's really for anyone. And she will share an incredibly personal and touching story about how mindfulness truly saved her life. And that is how she came to mindfulness. And that is why she is teaching it, why she co-founded the Center of Contemplative Science. It is truly inspiring to listen to her and to hear how she took a hardship in her life, not only turned her life around, but made it her mission to help others. So she will be talking about mindfulness and the importance of it in learning and also her own personal story. My third uh, guest is the president of Quick Competence in New York City. Quick Competence helps leaders to design learning into the workplace. And this is a very practical discussion where he gives fantastic tips and ways of looking at learning in the workplace that really focuses on not looking at training as knowledge transfer. Rather, it should help and enable people to do their job. His philosophy on workplace learning takes learning out of the workplace in a sense so that actually the job is designed in such a way that the learning is built in. This is what he calls performance learning. You learn in the process of doing the job. 
extremely useful, very applicable, and really interesting. I hope you will join me for these conversations and that you will come away inspired and with nuggets of insights that you can apply to your own work. My next guest is David Kelly, who is the executive director of the Learning Guild in New York. And he will be giving a keynote talk that is titled, A Look Ahead, The Now and the Next of Learning and Technology Within Organizations. And in that talk, he will explore the changing face of learning technology landscape, which is absolutely something that a wonderful thing to get an insight on. So thank you very much, David, for joining the podcast. No, thank you for having me. So can you please tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I have been in the learning field for 20, 30 years now, a number of hair colors. And I've been in a space of, of training director and learning director in financial organizations, nonprofits for a number of years. But about eight years ago, I joined the Learning Game, which is a professional development community for people who use technology-based learning solutions. Predomin we, we support academic and predominantly corporate institutions. Um, we host conferences and develop magazines and, and other types of content so that people can learn more about this space. So I've been doing that as the executive director for about eight years now, leading that organization. Wonderful. And yes, that's a good thing for people who haven't heard about the Learning Guild yet. That's a wonderful thing to explore. What is it, the experience that people have? We have so we have a couple of different elements to it. At our core, our membership is free. If you go to learningguild.com, you can find out more about becoming a member. And membership gets you discounts to our conferences uh, or all of our online events. It comes with access to our research reports, our monthly article content, a lot of free content attached to membership. We, we start from the basis of membership is free. People can also subscribe to our online conferences if they'd like. They can uh, become a member of our Learning Leadership Alliance. There are some additional things that we offer beyond just our free membership. But I would definitely recommend checking out learningguild.com. And if you're not a member already, it is free check it out, uh, check out the resources that are there and consider joining the organization because it's a great community. It's one of the mm -hmm. reasons that I, I was a member of this community before I joined the guild as an employee. It was where I met my people. So I encourage you to just learn, learn more and, and check it out. Absolutely. That's a great thing. So what is the essence of your talk? It's a huge topic that you're going to be covering. So Sure. So it, it's, it's my favorite talk. I mean, I speak at events fairly often. And what I love about this talk is I've been giving this talk literally for probably five or six years, a number of times a year. And in all the dozens of times I've delivered it, it's never the same because it's, it's always an updated version of it. You know, my role at the Guild, being a professional development organization that is always focused on the intersection of learning and technology, it's in many ways my job to stay on top of how technology and learning are evolving and what new technologies are changing our practices and things of that sort. Uh, so a talk like this gives me the opportunity to share those observations. It's not about me going out and saying this is important or this is not important, mm -hmm. uh, because I think that that's part of the message of the keynote that I do each time is it's not about me to tell, telling anybody what is right or wrong for their organization. It's me providing the context and the data through which people can use to make their own determinations of what's appropriate given their own context. The, the talk explores that message of why this intersection of learning and technology is different, how to provide some tips on how to take this information and apply it to your own environment. And it does explore specific trends in our industry. Some of the, some of the more current trends of, and examples of them in practice of why it's trending, why it's important to our field, 
and how you can develop your skills in that space. Mm, that's such an important thing because it is a very fast moving space with a lot of new tools coming up. And as you said, I mean, one tool can be absolutely fantastic for one purpose and one group, but another tool might serve a, a completely different group. So it's important to understand the field and find out from people like you and your organization what is out there because it's absolutely huge and who, who it's working for. And so you said that your organization also does research into what kind of research do you do? We are privileged to have a, a member of our staff, Jane Bozart, who's, who's fairly well known in the field, who's our research director. Every month she generates a great report looking at some of the, sometimes we'll, we'll pull the data ourselves by surveying our community. Other times she'll, she'll provide reports that are just doing the research herself. Other times mm -hmm. she'll provide commentary on existing research that other people does. But one of the reasons we're very fortunate to have Jane is, is our research always has a very practical approach. Wonderful. She's very good at distilling academic research into the practicality of it. Uh, and that's yeah. always been the lens through which that we, we try to generate our research is to look at how, how the information that is being shared can be put into practice. And, and we've been thrilled to have Jane be a part of our team to be able to do that for us. And every single month she generates some sort of a report in that, range, in that realm. Yeah, that is really amazing and, and very useful. And so what are some of the top points that you're going to be making in your talk? What, what are some of the, of course, I don't want to take away no. all of your talk, but what are some of the highlights that excites you that you think is interesting? So one of, one of the things that always excites me about this talk is as people, I think, understandably come to this talk for let's just explore the trends and find out what's trending and why it's trending. And there will be part of that talk. There will be an, a good portion of the time that we're going to spend together is going to be exploring some of the trends and, and why they're trending. And, and there'll be times where I'm just sharing data and my own observations. There will be times, and I try to call them out, where I will kind of pull out my own personal soapbox and kind of say, this is my opinion on it. This is why I think it's important. This is why I think you need to care about it. But that's my opinion, different than just objective data. Uh, mm -hmm. But the thing that I really enjoy about the talk, and I think often resonates with people, there's the information about the trends that we're going to explore, no doubt. But more importantly for me is changing the lens through which we look at the trends. To kind of look at it, not, you know, one of the one of the themes that is very prevalent in the talk is we have this idea in our industry around learning technologies. And I put my air quotes when I say that, that phrase there, because that's a phrase that we use often. And what I'm about to say, I say as a gentleman who hosts expos and, and trade shows in the learning space for a lot of times, you say you're going to go to a, an expo and you're going to explore all of these learning technologies. But I would argue that when you go through an expo and you explore all the tools that are out there, you're not really seeing learning technologies. You're seeing education and training technologies. That's not a statement that one is better than the other. It's just an acknowledgement of why those two terms are different and why it's important that you recognize that those two terms are different. And that's a key element of this talk for me is to kind of look at the language that we use and how it shapes the lens through which we see our work. And by looking at it a little differently and from a new angle, just in terms of the language that we use and the way that we view the work that we do, we can get a better understanding of, the, of how to do the work that we do better. Can you give a little bit more detail on what you mean by that different language? How does, what is the impact of understanding that different types of language sure. that you just spoke of? So going back to the specifics of educational and training technology. Mm -hmm. So we, we say that these are, we, we use this phrase learning technologies a lot. And if we use that phrase constantly to define the technologies that we use. But in reality, when you look at them closely, they're more education and training technologies. Then we're defining the technologies that we use to support learning 
as educational and training technologies. And the example that I, I often come back to, to kind of demonstrate why that's wrong is when you're going out to dinner with somebody. You know, you're, you're, you're out to dinner with a bunch of friends, you're talking about somebody or well, the conversation's flowing and somebody asks a question at the table and says, and nobody, nobody at the table knows the answer. Mm-hmm. And the table just kind of goes silent. And the silence is always broken by the same thing. Somebody pulling out their phone and saying, I'll Google it. And <laughs> that to me is a learning technology. Nobody's, nobody's thinking of that as, as a very specific, I'm going to be a self-directed learner. I'm going to use this in a moment of learning. They're just solving the problem. That to me is, is the intersection of learning and technology, that we have this technology that enabled us to get the answer in the moment and we're leveraging it. And we're learning in that moment. And that to me is, is where, where the difference is. I mean, a, another phrase that I use often in this context is if you want to understand how technology is changing the way that we learn, you don't look at education and training. If you want, and that's not a criticism, that's just the reality. If you want to understand how technology is going to change the way that we learn, you have to look at how technology is changing the way that we live our daily lives. It's those behaviors that are going to affect habits that affect how we just exist in a digital environment in an increasingly digital world, that behavior becomes just embedded into the way that we learn. And I think that sometimes we lose sight of that lens because we're defining learning technologies through the technologies that we use most often, which are education and training technologies. And so which te- what kind of trend are you most interested in right now? What kind of trend is happening right now that is ex- most exciting to you? So it, admittedly, I'm bringing I, you, the question by its nature is bringing my bias to the table. So with, with, with that understanding, because uh, yes. I, I, and I also and I say my bias in the sense of I am admittedly a shiny object guy. Like okay. I, I, before <laughs> I before I buy it, I will of course vet it to determine whether or not it actually has value. Mm-hmm. But if there's something that's new and different and exciting, I want to go play with that thing so that I can explore it and see what what the new thing is. So for me, on my own personal bias, the, the technologies that excite me most are the ones that are enabling us to do things we've never done before. So I'll give you one specific example. And this is not necessarily saying that this is more important than anything else, but mm-hmm. it's, it's very contextual to the answer here. Um, virtual reality, as an example. Virtual reality, to me, in terms of its long-term impact on our industry, is a very narrow slice of, of, the, of the pie. It's, it's got a very narrow use case, but a very powerful use case in the sense of some, in the sense that it's, it's solving problems we've never been able to solve. You know, when you have skills that in order for you to practice is literally creating risks that could be life and death or hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage to, to try to give somebody the opportunity to practice that skill. And now you can create a simulation that in virtual reality that can, that can still build those skills, but in a safe environment where the risks are much less, that's playing in a space we've never been able to play before. Um, and I do think that virtual reality, while it's not going to replace everything that we're doing by, the, by any stretch of the imagination, I do think it's going to fill a hole that we've never been able to fill effectively before. And I think that's the key. I really like that because that is the key, isn't it? With any kind of technology is that that it's enabling us to do something that is meaningful that we haven't been able to do before. So it's not doing something new for the sake of doing something new, but it is enabling us to do something that has not been possible before do it better than we have in the past. Yeah. And that's a really important thing. So although you like the shiny objects, but at the same time, it's not for just for the sake that it's a shiny object. It's for the sake that it's enabling us to do new and wonderful things, yeah. which is absolutely fantastic. So what do you hope people will take away from your talk? 
Um, I hope the biggest word that I, I hope people always take away from my talk is, is context. And I mean that in the sense of, I hope that I'm, every time I give a talk like this, I always hope that I'm giving people something that is useful in the work that they do. Everybody yes. has a different environment that they work in. Everyone has different goals. Everyone has different cultures that they work in. And, and if I tried to just say, here's the, like, I go back to my obsession with language. It's one of the reasons I never say, I'm going to give you a best practice. Because to me, I don't think, I, I hate that phrase. I don't think best mm -hmm. practices really exist because it's an, it, it is completely without context. What works well in one organization does not work well for another. So when I talk about practices, I usually use the phrase proven practices. This is something that did, it worked. I did, it worked and it's replicable. It may work for you, but you may need to adapt it in your context or it may be completely inappropriate for your context. So what I hope that people get out of the session I hope that they gain information from the talk that they are then able, and I and some tips and some tools from the talk that they are able to take the information that we share and we explore together and apply it to the context of their own work. Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. That is very important and very important to have people like yourself in your organization who, again, can scan the horizon and scan what's out there because it is huge. And it is really important to be able to have someone bring that to you. So this will be a very interesting talk. And more broadly, looking ahead, what excites you about the learning space? You've been in learning for a long time. You're really looking at the entire landscape. So what is exciting to you in the future? There's a lot of different elements. I think for the, the one I'll pick out for this one right now is the intersection of data and learning. I think that we are rapidly approaching a point where we have a, an increasing level of understanding around performance. You know, I, I've, I've always been in organizational learning. I've never been an academic. So I preface that my next statement with that background. Um, mm -hmm. I've always looked at it through the lens that no organization that I've ever worked for really cares about learning, at least not in its purest form. They care about what people do with what they've learned. They care about the performance. If, if, if learning was not linked someone's ability to perform better in their job, most organizations, unfortunately, probably would support learning as well. Yes. Um, so I do think we're getting, technology is enabling us to better understand how people are performing. Mm -hmm. And that gives us the ability to, to better support learning. I see trends like workflow learning and micro learning and data and analytics and XAPI, things that are getting us closer and closer to really understanding the individual's performance and thus being able to give us more customized learning solutions that support individual needs. Um, you know, we, we've been throwing this phrase personalized learning around for decades. As long as I've been in this field, we've been talking about personalized learning, but we've never really been able to deliver it. And it seems like we're getting closer and closer to training paradigms and training programs that are getting closer to delivering true personalized learning. And that's transformative to me. That makes it really a really exciting time to be in our field. Wonderful. Well, definitely something to keep an eye on. So thank you very much. Looking forward to your talk. And thank you so much, David, for giving us a glimpse into what is coming. So thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. My next guest is Professor Umi Kim from the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. And her talk is titled Mindfulness Intervention Courses in STEM Education, a Qualitative Assessment, which sounds absolutely fascinating to put mindfulness in STEM education. Welcome, Yumi. Hi, Gina, and hi, everybody. <laughs> Call me Gina, because, you no, know, I'm going for Gina as a scientist, 
and as yoga and mindfulness practitioner. Well, welcome, Gina. And uh, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? I'm a research associate professor at KAIST, as just Kina introduced me. And I'm co-founder of the Center for Contemplative Science there. And so your talk is bringing mindfulness into STEM education. So can you tell me what is the essence of your talk? Well, you know, the story is very long, but I'm going to, you know, playing the long story short. I went to the same college 30 years ago. At that time, of course, you know, nowadays also, in STEM colleges, it's like masculine area, actually. So when I went to Kaiser 30 years ago, I was struggling myself to adapt myself in the life of fully dorm life there. So you were going through a really difficult time and you came yes. to mindfulness in some way? So, you, you, you know, in my college and my master's degree, I was looking for some way that I can, you know, soothe my mind mm-hmm. and heart. But it's not easy for me to observe those kind of practices. Right. So I became a Buddhist nun. <laughs> I know there is something to ease my mind, but I didn't know what to do. So I was looking for a long journey. Where is it? Where is it? And then I came across that Buddhism, there is a practice. There are many practices. So I became a nun and I went to India to practice yoga for two years. I thought that uh, being a Buddhist nun and being in the monastery life can help me to ease my mind and heart. Yes. In the process of becoming a Buddhist nun, you learned how to meditate and you learned about mindfulness. That's where you learned it. And Mm -hmm. so how did you apply that to STEM education? How did this help you? First of all, maybe step back in terms of how did learning mindfulness help you? Kina, I found that the meaning of life from my mindfulness practice. Before I made up my mind to start my practice one day i was i was about to commit suicide oh my gosh wow mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know uh, out of the 17 17 story high building i was you know hanging out there at that time i saw my neighbor they were laughing each other. They were drinking and they were, you know, hanging each other, hanging out each other. And I noticed why they are so, they look so happy and why am I so miserable? And then suddenly I made up my mind, Gina, there must be something else other than, you know, there must be some other way for you to be in the world. So if you decide to commit suicide or you know, kill yourself, why don't you throw yourself with 100% to look for some other way of being? And then at that time, 
I started my spiritual journey wow. and I became ordained because, you know, the Korea is a law, has a long history of Buddha, Buddhist you know, tradition. And I observe the practices of mindfulness and yoga. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Wow. During the seven year of my being not, I went to India to practice yoga and Burma to practice shamatha and vipassana meditation, uh, which is the profound resource of all the mindfulness practices. And when I'm over my practice from the center in Burma, I came back to my mind and heart again. And I keep asking myself, Gina, what do you want to do? 10 years ago, you, you were about to die. You were, you were about to kill yourself. And after 10 years, now you found the, the peace in your mind. And what do you want to do now? And I came back to my, the memory as a college student at KAIST. And I talked to myself, Gina, now you know how they are suffered how you, you were suffered when you were young. And then there are many more students, not only KAIST, but also, you know, the KAIST means like, for example, all the world ed- education students. So do you feel any new, just like New Year's resolution, mm-hmm. you have something, new life resolution, and I made up my mind, I'd like to share the benefit of mindfulness practice with more people. Wow, well, thank you so much for sharing that. That's an incredibly touching story and really, really profound. In what way did mindfulness help you finding happiness? What about this practice do you think people don't understand in being able to really transform their lives so much? The benefit of my mindfulness practice is well known, actually. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'd better share my experience or my thought. Yes. Personally, I have the acceptance of the situation. There are things that I can change. There are things that I cannot do anything. Right. This sounds simple. Not easy. No, definitely not easy. Absolutely. Mm, it's not easy. It is really hard. So you're now applying mindfulness education to STEM students, students in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. What are you teaching them? And what kind of program do you have to help them? I'm not teaching. <laughs> I am I am playing with them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> playing, <laughs> playing, mindfulness playing. Maybe. And that's the intervention so, that you're talking about, yes, right? Yes. Okay. So basically it is 10 week session. The students should take this course. What you know, this is a, one of the elective programs for them to be graduated for college. Mm-hmm. And during 10 week session, many parts I excerpted from MBSR developed by John Tabatzini. Mm-hmm. And I applied some 
playing, like mindfulness, drawing, mindfulness, listening to music, mindfulness, studying, mm-hmm. and mindfulness lying down on the floor. So yes. during the course, my primary intention is that why don't I give the students the chance of being relaxed, being accepted and accepting themselves as they are. Right. Absolutely. What do you find most interesting in this, in teaching this course? What has struck you as as an interesting outcome in in teaching the course? You know, uh, the course was offered last year during the pandemic. So everybody should join through the online classes. Most of the students are internationals at KAIST, means they should stay their home countries. When we started our class, they were sharing that how they are lonely, they are disconnected each other. As time goes by, you know, as a way of MBI course, uh, we offered a lot of diets and trials during the session. a way of sharing one's experience. Mm. And they were getting close to each other and they were opening up their mind and they realized the common humanity, commonality between human beings. Mm. Oh, it's not only me, but everybody who suffered. So once they realized this commonality, they open up and there is a metacognitive cognitive way of supporting each other. I see. And so what is an example of an activity that you do? So you said you use MBI. Mindfulness-based intervention. What is an activity for someone who's listening to kind of understand a little bit what creates that connection for people? Yes, that's wonderful. (laughs) So, you know, in the course of MBI, there are mindfulness hatha yoga, mindfulness yoga practice. And in my class, we are mirroring each other. Means, for example, yeah, for example, in the screen, I name Kinga, can you show us how to move your body forward? And then you show how to move your body in a forward bending and all the classes are mirroring you so we are following your movement. And then once you are done, I'm going to name, for example, Gina, can you do the, the backward bending? And then we will do. So all the classes are moving in the same way. And that's why I don't want to be, uh, be teaching, but also I want to like, uh, you know, guiding, facilitating. Mm. The that's such a good exercise, isn't it? For online classes to say, yes. student so-and-so, show me with your arms up and then every that student puts their arms up and everybody puts their arms up sure, sure. so that, that i've never heard that before that's really interesting and then, you know, a, like, Kina, personally you know i'm many times i'm getting embarrassed during the class because i'm saying i'm talking and then you know i how can i say we don't know who's gonna do who's doing what mm. so that's so you know i'm i want to invite many students to be fully attentive yes during the course so 
So when you are leading the forward bending movement, you are teaching. So everybody is teaching in the class. Mm -hmm. Oh, fantastic. That is really, really nice. And so out of this class, you see students at the end of the semester leaving. And what difference do you see in them? How are they changed? You know, from the presentation and from the academic manuscript we submitted for the conference, the major finding is that they became aware of the body physical sensation, you know, maybe some temperature or the tightness or tension. So they are getting to know how they feel on their body. And you know what, from the mindfulness uh, practices, the awareness of body starts the mindfulness itself. It's the beginning of the journey. Yes. Really interesting. And I, I really look forward to your talk where you'll, you'll discuss this more. But what do you hope people listening to your talk will come away with? You know what? <laughs> you are very lonely. I mean, you know, as an online teacher, online facilitator, you must be lonely. That's what I felt during my class. I felt like uh, many times, oh, I wish I could be, could have something, you know, in person, like, uh, you know, interaction each other. So as an online facilitator, you know, coming back to our breath, just three breaths <laughs> will help you. <laughs> and that is such an important thing, isn't it? Can you just... Give an example to someone maybe who isn't familiar with how three breaths will help you. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So while you are sitting on the chair or on the floor, feeling the body weight and touching sensation, Being grounded there, coming back to the breath. And in our breath. Just three counts. And coming back to the to the present again. That's wonderful. And now we're ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, hopefully people people try that out because it is a very, very good practice that you can employ in any situation. And it really does calm the heart and calm the mind. Thank you very much for doing that. Before we leave, I wanted to ask you more broadly, what do you find exciting in what's coming up in the learning space? When I found the Learning Ideas Conference, I was excited that this is a time of bridging the online and in-person and Sec secular and mindfulness 
my expectation is this learning at this conference is really broadening your scope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I am grateful for the, com- the conference to invite our presentation because as a STEM and the, the mindfulness in the STEM is a rare subject. Yes. And I see your openness. So I think that is our hope to go. That's wonderful. I mean, it, it, it is very true that these sorts of practices coming to STEM subjects, coming to any subject, anyone, but it has a lot to offer. That's very interesting. And thank you very much for sharing your your personal journey and story that is extremely touching and really inspiring to hear how you are helping other people to find joy and acceptance and be able to be their most productive and best selves. Thank you so much, Gina. And I really look forward to hearing your talk. Thank you. And reading more about your work. So thank you for joining me. <laughs> okay. Kinga, thank you so much. My next guest is Hal Christensen, who is the founder of Quick Competence in New York. And he will be giving a talk titled, It's Time to Shift Our Perspectives from Teaching How to Enabling Doing. Absolutely a wonderful topic on how to learn as you are doing your work. So thank you so much, Hal, for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. Before we dig in into the topic of your talk, can you give us a little introduction into who you are? Well, I've been around for a while, so it's probably not a little introduction, but <laughs> uh, I've been in corporate training for the last 40 years. In fact, 40 years this month, I think I took my first job in corporate training. I had been in uh, education, teaching high school, college. I worked in educational publishing for a few years and then sort of stumbled into corporate training like most people stumble into corporate training, not realizing existing and realizing something I might do. And I started off in a bank in New York and worked there for a few years. And then I went with a consulting firm about the same time that I joined the bank in 1981, it coincided with the introduction of the IBM PC. Mm-hmm. And I got very excited about the potential of the computer in news and training and education and so forth. Uh, not so much the delivery, but the degree that it gives people a huge amount of resources at their fingertips as they're trying to do their, do their work. And I left uh, the bank to work with another company to set up a, a department to do that sort of thing. We called it computer-based training in those days. It's now called e-learning. And I was then for a number of years doing a lot of work for large companies, mostly in the New York City area. Mm-hmm. And then in the mid-90s, I formed a partnership and did the same thing, Christensen Robert Solutions, and we did that for a lot more uh, large organizations. The last few years, I've been doing more individual consulting, not so much uh, projects. I'm not taking on projects at this point. I'm winding down after all these years. Uh, I'm still active in concepts of what I believe in. And so I kind of hang out in professional groups and so on, because I think there's some messages I want to try to get across before I, I hang it all up. Wonderful. Well, you have a wealth of experience in seeing how the industry has developed and grown and changed. And so I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your insights and perspectives. So can you tell me about the essence of your talk? Well, I'm in a career position uh, because I'm talking at a learning ideas conference. And I'm going to be advocating for far less learning than we do. Um, Far less um, learning. So it's a little bit bit awkward. Um, I'm going to talk about about paradigms and perspectives. Uh, and in our profession, in corporate training, also in education as well, but corporate training, there is the, the major paradigm of 
model is that you learn first and then you do. And so we start with you take a training class and a course, you learn what you have to do, then you go on the job and, and do that. The problem with that, of course, is that doesn't work very well. And if we look at all of the results that we get, it's very hard to prove that the training that we're doing has the impact that we want. We want training to be able to accelerate, to, to maximize, to, to sustain employee performance. And it's not doing that. Mm -hmm. And what we find is training takes too long. It, it, it's um, for both development and, and people taking it and, and delivering it. Mm -hmm. People cannot learn everything they need to learn. They cannot remember everything they learn. They cannot apply what they should be applying. And so when they finally get around to doing the work, it's nowhere near maximum performance. It takes months to get there. Right. And then finally, after a couple of months, everything changes and everything you learned in the training course becomes uh, irrelevant. And I compare it to, to a paradigm in science, like Galileo recognizing that, you know, this idea of the sun revolving around the earth just doesn't make sense. You look at all the data and there's nothing, it's not, not doing it. Uh, we got to come up with something else. And he comes up with a heliocentric view of, uh, of the universe. So I'm trying to shift that focus away from the idea of you learn before you do. And, and it's an, uh, several different things. The concept uh, that I work on then is, is how do you enable people to learn as they do? Yes. Suppose we stop looking at training as knowledge transfer. And look at what we're trying to do is trying to help and enable people to do their jobs. And so when you do that, the idea of, of learning really moves away from learning something to enabling people to do it so that the, the, what, what you're doing, the learning becomes part of a tool to be used, not something to be learned, observed, absorbed, and hopefully remembered at some later point, but it's part of the process of doing. And I refer to this as performance learning. It's a combination of the two. And as you are performing, you learn. Tell us a little bit about what that, what you're envisioning here, what you're trying to refer to. The model that I'm, I'm using and will, will show is that for what this might be, is something we're all familiar with. And that is the concept and the model of a recipe. Mm -hmm. So if you had to you know, guess over tonight and you want to cook a meal and you want to cook something you've never cooked before, what are you going mm -hmm. to do? You're not going to look for a training course. You're not going to say, I'll sign up for a training course two weeks from now. I'm not going to spend that two hours in a training course day or inside the thing. I've got to get the damn thing done. I've got to get the meal on the table. And I don't want to kill anybody in the yeah. process of doing it. <laughs> so you so you turn yes. to, you know, Betty Crocker. You turn to, to a recipe book. And a recipe book gives you what you need. Because the focus of the recipe is not to teach you, not for you to learn how to cook the meal. The focus of the recipe to get the damn meal cooked on the table and everybody eating. It. Right. That's a great analogy. And yes. so when you focus on that, you shift everything around. So you realize mm -hmm. that the learning comes, it's not trying to teach me. So the learning comes as I do. And it gives me what I need to do up front and the ingredients and how I might need to prepare those ingredients before I do all the prep work and all that kind of thinking of doing all designed to do mm -hmm. this, 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 we're teaching, we're showing you how to do it. And you do it, you do right. it, you do it. Then we have the recipe, the, the, the actual directions preparing and you do all that and you follow it. It's guiding you through. You don't have to memorize the steps from a training class because the steps are right there. It's right beside you, the mm -hmm. recipe is there. You follow, you do, you do, follow and do the whole thing. Where you might need more help. So your meal might call for sauteing chicken. Well, I'm not really sure exactly how to do that. Maybe you click and there's a little micro learning. There's a little video of Julia Child showing you how to, you know, saute a chicken or something, but you're getting it then. You're not getting it, you know, six hours ago or three weeks ago where you're getting it then. Oh, okay, that's what I do. And then you, and, and then you do it. And, and so the whole thing becomes you are, you engage in the process of doing. 
but there is learning because as you are doing, you are learning. And if you do, Definitely. if you do this two or three times, make that recipe, you will eventually internalize it and learn it and much better than you would have learned it if you tried to memorize the entire process beforehand and, mm -hmm. then, uh, and then did it. So you have a whole, and it's and much faster because the recipe is not trying to teach you, the recipe is just trying to show you, enable you to, to do it. And that's where we have to shift right. the focus. We have to shift the focuses. Our workers are workers, they're not learners. We play this little game, oh, our workers are learners. They, want, they don't want to learn. They want to get the damn job done. So you'll have to really integrate the learning into their job, yes. which is, of course, the best way of learning. And a lot of it comes just by doing. And I have to teach you to go from one step one to step two because it's there. So they're, they're learning, right. but the, the goal is not to get you to learn that. The goal is to get you from step one to two, three to four, five. It was yeah. down to a great quote that I, I love from uh, Buckminster Fuller, the fellow that invented the geodesic dome. And, and Fuller's statement was that if you want to teach someone to think and act differently. You don't try to train them to think and act differently. You give them a tool, the use of which requires them to think and act differently. So a recipe is a tool that requires you to think and act differently because it's going to ask you to do this or think about this or do this. It's going to prompt you and nudge you through the whole process in a way that you would not have, which perhaps you would hope you could train in the training program, but there's no training program. They're doing it as they go through it. So if I'm preparing for uh, running a meeting, it's going to uh, a proper recipe, job recipe, would say, okay, now let's anticipate what possible problems you might have in this meeting. You know, Mary and Harry can't stand each other. And then two minutes into the meeting, they're going to be screaming. Then, okay, put here, with a little worksheet, put here, what are you going to do to prevent that before it happens? Yes. And, and George Absolutely. isn't going to stop talking and he'll talk for 20 minutes every time. So how are you going to set up the meeting and structure the meeting the agenda so that George is not going to be allowed to do that? So you're thinking and anticipating mm -hmm. and you're thinking about structuring the whole thing. So all of that is a recipe. So you keep training we're doing and the recipe we have to see as a tool. Absolutely. That's a really nice way of looking at it. It's not something to be learned. It, 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 is, it is a tool and we're providing that tool. And as we go through, we can do a lot of different things to make it easier for someone to do the job. I, yes. I, I make the comparison between two runners. One's a sprinter and one is a, a high hurdler, say 100 meter high hurdle. Two women. The woman who runs who sprints every time gonna finish several seconds faster than the person who goes through the high hurdles. So the question is, what do we do? Do we spend our time trying to teach the woman who's doing the high hurdles, jump higher or faster and so on? Maybe what to do is get rid of the goddamn hurdles. And so part of what we're doing when you put it into a recipe, you can begin to look at, is this, what is the best way to do these steps? Right. Maybe we skip this Absolutely. one. Maybe we lead them to this way and this way and this way. Rather than teach them how to do something, jump the hurdles, is there ways in which we can reduce? I don't want people to think. <laughs> Basically, the idea is to get them through. <laughs> Their goal is to get this stuff off the desk. People are working 50, 60 hours a week. They don't want to be going to training. Yes. Give me a tool that's going to maybe get through this. And that's, that's what absolutely happens. that's the thing that we have to be continuously learning in the workplace. And that's going to be the case more and more as the pace of change continuously increases. But you do have to make that well integrated into the work so that it's not only enjoyable, but extremely useful and effective in the way that we learn and also in getting the job done, as you said. So how do you help companies achieve this? What is your approach? Well, I've been doing variations of this for, for many years. Basically, it's to take a look at the, at the job 
and take a look at what one of the things that are difficult for people to do on the job. I'll give an example. I did uh, a program along with someone else. We did a program for a number of different companies in a call center. And the average training for the call center worker was 30 days. They would bring in a dozen people. They teach them. This is company benefits back before intranets and so on 30 mm -hmm. years ago. And teach them all about the benefits so that they can answer phone calls from employees about is acupuncture covered in my healthcare plan and so on. And we looked at it and said, well, you're trying to get everybody to memorize all the plans and be able to answer all the questions and so on. And that's terribly inefficient. And of course, it takes 30 days and they're not going to remember it all. And they're going to fumble from it. And, and turnover rate, as you can imagine, was very high. Suppose we reorganize the information so that we chunk it and we base it on the questions being asked rather than what's in the, the, the employee manual. And we work it so that when somebody calls up and says uh, a question about acupuncture is it covered in my health insurance, a couple of clicks in the database gives you the chunk of information, answers that question specifically. You no longer have mm. to memorize it beforehand. Wonderful. The result, 30 days of training, this results are IBM is one of the companies that bought the concept. They went from 30 days of training for their reps to four days of training for their reps because mm. we cut out Amazing. the need to memorize. Right, because they practice it on the job. They were given a tool that prompted them. and It's not, it's not just practice. They did it. No, they were doing it. Yeah. And they learned the process yes. of doing it. They weren't trying to learn. We weren't trying to continue to learn. We're trying to get them you get the answer and then you repeat the answer. They internalized. Mm -hmm. There was no attempt to learn. It's just that after you answer that yes. question three or four times, you're going to be able to answer that question. But there's no attempt to do. The learning is not the goal. The goal is get that answer to the person who's calling up and helping the rep get that answer. And so it's not a process of how do you learn though? Now here's something we learn. Here's the extra, I will read this to the person uh, who asked the mm -hmm. question and, and it answers their question. And it worked marvelously in, in, in many different many different ways. But that's the kind of thing that, that you do so that the work, the knowledge is in the work itself and not in a learning yes. process. It is actually doing it. It's like mm -hmm. you take a, G, a GPS, like I drive to Philadelphia tomorrow morning for a meeting downtown Philadelphia. I'm not going to try to learn it. And the goal of the GPS is enough for me to learn how to drive to Philadelphia. I just follow the direction mm -hmm. and get there. If I do it a few times, I'll probably say, okay, I don't need the GPS. I learned it. But I didn't try to learn it. It wasn't, oh, it's going to be interesting. Learn. No, there's nothing about learning. I'm not tempting to learn. I'm tempting to do. Yeah, so it's really integrating in those tools. And then eventually, is that tool meant to be removed? Or is that something that you work into the process of well, work? Well, I think the what makes sense is integrating into the process of work. What you have now is, you know, the concept of recipe is always the recipe book or the recipe clip from the magazine and put them on camera. But what we have now is our, our, our cell phones. We have them everywhere. Mm -hmm. Why, a great yeah, tool that can be yeah, used yeah. a lot so, more. So Absolutely. it makes sense. So if we say, well, are they going to learn it? Yeah, they, they'll learn it. But that's not the point. The point is not the learning. The point is the doing. So if they keep on using it, they will learn it. But the goal, that's not the goal. The goal is you, you do it and you'll have the phone when you, when you do it. It's osmosis. You eventually learn it because not because it was a good lesson. You learn it because you did it. Absolutely. And so, I mean, I think it's easy to imagine that this is much more complicated to design than to design a course to tell you how to do something and then let you go back into the workplace. What kind of advice do you have? Of course, hiring someone like yourself is, you know, a, a really good way to integrate the learning and the doing design. But how, what is it that you suggest to companies 
organizations that want to try and design their learning like this, what should be some of the top things they should be thinking about? Well, what I'm going to try to show in, in my hour on Thursday, and I hope I, <laughs> I can keep myself in that hour, <laughs> is, is to start with a, with a job map in which there are various stages of what you need to go through. And every job uh, has that process, has those, those stages. And to look at, mm-hmm. at it in terms of, okay, what do we want people to be doing in this stage? Okay. Um, and then what can we give them? What knowledge? Or I'm, I'm using the term micro learning and micro tools uh, because some of it's learning and some of it's actual yes. tools, a checklist or, you know, and tools. Um, what learning tools can we put into this recipe? And they've got the recipe, it's right there, and they can click and bring in anything they want there. The whole world is out there. What do we want to provide them with or do to help them to speed up and to make it easier for them to do this stage? And the first stage is, is yes. to kind of make your goal and what you're trying to do and accomplish. And what can we give them? Then the next stage, what can you do to help them locate what resources and so on they need and to prepare to help them prepare to do that? So you do that all through the whole task. Uh, and then you put together the, uh, begin to put together those resources and the, uh, and, and the tool and they have the tool. And so they go through and, then you test to make sure it's doing what we <laughs> intended, yes. intended for it to it to do. It's not necessarily more Excellent. difficult. I mean, it's difficult because we don't think in those terms. If we're designed to think yes. in terms of you know an ADI model or learning models of various sorts, uh, then we're hung up on well, what are we going to do to get them to remember something? That's not what we're goal. We'll go is what can we give them right here that's going to cut out a step or make it easier. They can do this now in two minutes rather than uh, if we give you a template for uh, for a, a business meeting. Saved you seventy percent of the work. Well, let's let's give them the agenda, and the template, and let's make it easy for them to complete it. Then, so the the time of putting together the agenda shrinks tremendously. So you're constantly looking at right. what can we do to make it easier and enable somebody to get through uh, each of the each of the steps, and then find you know, there's ways of you know, making sure you're doing it right and setting your goals and and a variety of other sorts of things. But it starts with the with, with the job map, and then yeah. where can we provide micro learning or micro tools as you're walking through this to make it easier for them to, to get that, that step done. Wonderful. And I would imagine that a big part of this process is working together in collaboration with different, different stakeholders. So there's the learning specialists, there's the individuals who are actually doing the work. I would imagine that it's, it's quite a big part of it to be working as a team to be able to fully understand the, the minutia of what is involved in each step. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously you need you know, subject matter experts, which you always do, people who know the tasks and so on, and to be able to have the stakeholders around. We always have... For the specific contextual, the contextual no, differences. But, but also, that... one of the problems we run into is that we run up against the mindset that says, okay, where's the training? And where's the test? Mm-hmm. And where's the score that goes into the LMS? Mm. And so you have to work with the... the stakeholders who are paying for this thing to recognize that's not what we're going to be delivering. We're going to be delivering people right. who are able to do this job on day one because they're going to be able to, to use this. Uh, and so we're working in a different uh, different way and have different measurements and different things we can do to, to help that. So you've got, you have to get a number of people involved. Then you do have to see what the process is, but you have to do a lot of thinking yourself and ask, could, could this be easier? Can we make this simpler? Can there some way we can reduce the workload on the on the worker to get them through this task as quickly as they possibly can and as effectively as mm-hmm. possible can. So fascinating, fascinating stuff. <laughs> it is fascinating. There's so much to dig into yeah. there, but I know you will do a lot more details in your talk. But what do you find most interesting 
in this entire process when you're working with organizations, when you're doing this type of work, what really strikes you as the most interesting? Well, it's exciting when people begin to see how powerful this concept is and that it's doable and begin to realize, gee, we're doing a lot of stuff that has no impact. And here's something that can actually have an impact. It's, it's a kind of, it's been driving me for well over 30 years uh, is to get across that kind of a, a concept. When people grasp it, it's very exciting. Maybe because then maybe they hire me. That's why it's exciting. But then. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes the learning not only more effective, you cut down on time that people are not able to do the job because they're yeah. in the learning yeah. classroom, but also it makes the job so much more enjoyable. I think it's quite rare that people really enjoy classroom yeah. learning. Uh, facilitating scaffolding your job actually does make the learning more interesting, more enjoyable, and the job as well. So that's a very much a win-win. So what do you hope people will take away from your talk? Well, I, it's obvious that they take away that, that framework. If they can understand what Buckminster Fuller was saying when you get people a tool and use of which I require them to, to do the, to make the change. That's what I'm hoping for is that kind of uh, understanding, oh, wait a second, we can eliminate 70% of what we're doing here and what they have to go through and have far more better results. We follow a different model. Wonderful. And so more broadly, what are you excited about in, ter- in the learning space? Looking forward, what excites you? Uh, there's always new technology and new things that you can you can do, new ways in which you can embed the information that people need into uh, the work that they that they do. And so where the internet is everywhere kind of kind of concept, where you're greatly reducing the amount of things that the human being has to do in order to be able to get something something done. And all those fit nicely into what I'm trying to do. So I'm excited about every new every new thing that you buy that has intelligence in it that saves me from having to do something is perfect. So the idea is you're going to need me to do it. You're not going to teach me how to do it. And then I got to figure out and you're going to do it for me. <laughs> There's a, a quote from Theodore Levitt back from seven, 60 years talking about marketing, but he said, customers don't want a quarter inch drill. They want a quarter inch hole. Our workers don't want to learn how to do something. They want it done. As far as we can go to help do it for them or make it easy for them to do it is what they want. They don't, oh, now we got to learn how to use the drill. No, no, no. Ikea doesn't think that way. They don't think we got to give you a drill to drill the hole. They drill the hole for you. Wow. How much time did that save? How much work did it? Thank you, Ikea. I can now build a a bookcase. This is what we have to be thinking in terms of. It's close to giving them the quarter inch hole as opposed to thinking, oh, we got to give them the drill and then some training on how to use the drill and and then that, 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 that. Give them the damn hole. Yes, or a little video that can show you exactly how to do it right then and there. (laughs) Yeah, or whatever. Yeah, if they can't do it, then view and do. It's yes. not a video I do yeah. and, and learn and, and two weeks later, it's a view and do. I see the view. Oh, okay. That, okay, I got it. That's what we got to be working yeah. with. The possibilities are endless. And especially with increasing technologies and the development in technologies, uh, it's truly a matter of imagination to make learning an interesting and exciting yeah. and effective yeah. for everyone. So, well, thank you. That thank sounds you. like a really wonderful work that you're doing. And I'm, I look forward to your talk to hear more about what you do in this space. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing it with so, us. Thank you.